Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Uh, it's uh, <coughs> a great delight to have Peter Clark here uh, to introduce uh, his wonderful new book, um, which has been called by Roy Hattersley, a book which ought to be required reading for every prospective minister. Um, it's a wonderful book, not only, of course, because Keynes was pretty wonderful and an extraordinarily interesting uh, thinker and person, but also because of the way in which uh, Peter treats him. It is, a, it is a most tremendous read, and I, I do really recommend it to you uh, for interest, but also, of course, for importance, because Keynes was the most important social thinker of the last century. Uh, without him, his ideas, we would now be entering uh, a second uh, Great Depression. And um, what Keynes did, of course, <laughs> between then uh, and now, was to create a new subject, uh, which is called macroeconomics, uh, meaning by that the study of aggregate demand independently of uh, aggregate supply. And this idea that you have to look at the elements of aggregate demand uh, uh, and uh, try and uh, explain them, uh, uh, and if you're a policymaker, think about how they're likely to evolve. This is, of course, the central idea in every macroeconomic model. So the idea that somehow we can do without Keynes is actually the fact that nobody engaged in any policy responsibility of any sort um, has ever actually in the last 50 years or so uh, done, done without Keynes. Um, how was it that he managed to break loose and create a new subject, break loose of the old ideas? Um, when I studied uh, macroeconomics here, Harry Johnson was a lecturer, and his theory was uh, that uh, Keynes was able to defy convention uh, because he had been uh, a homosexual. I don't know if that is true. Maybe Peter can reflect on that. Um, I also know from having been a student at King's College, Cambridge, where Keynes was a fellow, uh, that he was a, a, a quite terrifying person in many ways. <laughs> People used to dodge him in the great court there because if, you were, if he saw you approaching uh, along the path, uh, you could see him thinking what uh, subject he should interrogate you about. And he would then interrogate you until he had extracted everything he wanted to. And then, of course, that was all the use... Uh, that he had for you. So he was probably not the person one would go on holiday with. Um, but, but we all do owe him an, an enormous debt and really looking forward to hearing Peter tell us about him. Peter. Thank you very much for that uh, kind and thought, thought-provoking introduction. I'll, I'll try to live up to it. I'm I'm talking tonight about the reputation of Keynes. Um, Let's begin with with where we are now. The media on both sides of the Atlantic, print, radio, uh, electronic alike, have swooped upon the 80th anniversary of the great crash of 1929 when the bottom fell out of Wall Street. Now, in a different world, the great crash might well have rested in obscurity until its centenary came round, surely, without being hauled out at this point. And the fact that it's being so widely commemorated now shows that anniversarization, as we might call it, is more than a matter of checking the calendar, but rather an interactive uh, process. 
The great crash obviously touches a nerve with us because only a year ago we seemed to be looking into the same bottomless pit. The chain of events leading from a dramatic collapse in stock prices on Wall Street in October and November 1929 to a, a Great Depression that engulfed the world economy for years on end has suddenly leapt off the pages of the history books with an urgent sense of relevance for us now. Pessimists have asked, what is to stop it happening all over again? Optimists have asked, what can we learn to stop it from doing so? This is obviously one reason why the name of John Maynard Keynes emerges so frequently and so inexorably, so controversially in discussions of the present recession. But I think we need an equally obvious word of caution. Even if he was a great economist in his own time, surely we might say that time was a very long time ago. Yes, he was born in Cambridge in 1883, the same year that Karl Marx died. And the young Maynard, when he was at school at Eton, went up to London and watched the funeral of Queen Victoria. His, his father and his mother and his only brother, Sir Geoffrey Keynes, all lived on into their mid-90s. But Maynard died at what I now think of as the very early age of 62 in 1946, exhausted by the war work that he'd undertaken for the British government and glimpsing only the beginnings of the international economic era inaugurated two years previously by the Bretton Woods agreements. Many people ask, what would Keynes say today? But it's actually a rather silly question because either he would now be 126 years old and really very bemused by the world now around him. Or if you say, well, that's not what you meant. If we imagine him half that age, 1946 would be the year of his birth, not that of his death. And he would, like us, have escaped the experiences that actually formed him and his thinking. World War I and its aftermath, the world of the restored gold standard in the 1920s and the slump in Britain, the Great Depression of the 1930s, and the New Deal in America under President Roosevelt, World War II, and Britain's virtual bankruptcy, from which it was saved by Lend-Lease during the war, and then by the dollar loan of 1945, which was only recently uh, paid off to the United States and to Canada, and the Bretton Woods agreements setting up post-war international financial institutions. All of these were major events of first-rate importance in which the historical John Maynard Keynes played a major role himself. And surely, they affected his thinking as an economist. 
And we have to take them into account and their impact into account in understanding that thinking. So I insist on talking about what I call the historical Keynes rather than a timeless Keynes whose name can be appropriated for our own passing concerns. You know, there's a name for people who tell us with great confidence what Keynes would say today, ventriloquists. And I hope, at any rate, that's one hazard that we can avoid. We need to understand much more than academic shifts in economic doctrine in order to explain the making and the unmaking and now the remaking of Keynes's reputation. There's an 18th century maxim, reason is the slave of the passions. Perhaps we should bear it in mind when dealing with Keynes as an economist and in dealing with some of his rivals too. Let's say a word about some of those rivals. If academic economists are asked to name Keynes as real intellectual rivals within their discipline in the 20th century, I think they will often mention two figures, both of them originally Viennese. One is Joseph Schumpeter, later based at Harvard. And the other is Frederick von Hayek, successively based in Vienna, here at the LSE, in Chicago, and finally back in Salzburg. Their reputations have fluctuated, sometimes inversely. Indeed, some have argued that the post-war age of Keynes was succeeded by the end of the 20th century by the age of Schumpeter. On this reading, it was the posthumous triumph of the Schumpeterian vision of creative destruction, that key phrase, that key concept that he introduced, a process through which capitalism must be allowed to renew itself through processes that are apparently destructive without interference or inhibition from government intervention. Since the consequential inequities of capitalism are quite petty compared with the vast power of capitalism and of the free market system to enrich the whole community. So, allow the process to work itself through. That's Schumpeter's message. A similar story, again in counterpoise to Keynes, can be constructed about the reputation of Hayek. Hayek's subtle intuitions about the wisdom of the market as a vast system for gathering and disseminating more information than any planner could possibly handle is a central insight that was ultimately venerated in the age of Thatcherism and Reaganomics. Indeed, this belated recognition, it must be said to Hayek's credit, was in terms which rather embarrassed this fastidious old man. But perhaps that is the price of fame, Perhaps some vulgarization is inevitable when big ideas become operational 
as the stuff of politics and of policy. Perhaps no thinkers can ever govern the ultimate reception of their ideas. Now Keynes talked about this problem himself. He talked about it in terms of the power of ideas in which he expressed great faith as against vested interests. And his remarks at the conclusion of the general theory to this effect have often been quoted. He continues, practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct economist, madmen in authority, who hear voices in the air, are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. Well, in these terms, our theme is clear, isn't it? It's really the defunct economist syndrome, and that's what we'll be exploring. Contemporary economists who've never actually read any of the works of Keynes or Schumpeter or Hayek, because it's not very fashionable to read dusty old volumes in economics these days, nonetheless confidently invoke their names for their own purposes in identifying stylized concepts. Of course they do, as do scientists working in all sorts of different fields, identifying concepts that everyone in the field immediately recognizes. Now, I'm not going to make a pointless complaint about this sort of professional shorthand, which helps us all get our bearings quickly without reinventing the wheel daily. But when economists get their names into circulation in this big league, the reason is not just intellectual and academic. That's the point I'm making. It concerns influence. It's not simply because of their strictly scientific or professional contribution to economics, but often because of a public policy dimension and an appropriation of their names for vulgarized and sometimes simplistic distortions of their original meaning. And if this is true of Schumpeter and Hayek, it is even more true of Keynes. And also of a third potential rival to, claim, to Keynes's claim to be the most influential economist of the 20th century, I mean Milton Friedman, to whom I shall return in a few minutes. I hope that what I've been saying justifies the fact that in my new book on Keynes, I jump straight into a survey of what I call his roller coaster reputation, a phenomenon that needs much more than academic economics to explain it. Let me recap on some salient historical moments here, just to get the trajectory on which the roller coaster is running. Keynes's name first attracted wide public attention on both sides of the Atlantic in 1920. Still under 40, he became famous almost overnight as the author of The Economic Consequences of the Peace, published right at the end of 1919, a highly readable tract exposing the defects of the recent Versailles Peace Treaty as negotiated by Lloyd George as the British Prime Minister, and of course by Woodrow Wilson uh, uh, for the Americans, Clemenceau for the French. The book was a bestseller, not only in Britain, 
but even more so in the United States. The New York Times printed a full-page review, roundly denouncing it, by saying, in the English-speaking countries, it is capable of doing immense mischief. Ah, a review which did Keynes no harm in terms of sales. Keynes subsequently remained in the spotlight. So he already had a platform and an audience on both sides of the Atlantic too when he re-entered public debate with his controversial proposal for tackling unemployment with what he called a drastic remedy. In the Britain of the mid-1920s, already beset by mass unemployment, Orthodoxy relied on the self-acting mechanisms of the gold standard, pegging the currency to gold, and free trade between them to do the trick. Such arguments came to a head with Winston Churchill's decision to put Britain back on the gold standard, which it had abandoned during the First World War, in 1925 at the historic exchange rate of $4.86 to the pound. Yes, that was once the exchange rate, 4.86. Now, to Keynes, the new parity was both completely unrealistic and perfectly avoidable. Hence his polemical pamphlet, The Economic Consequences of Mr. Churchill, which he published in 1925. Published in the United States, too, but under another title, The Economic Consequences of Sterling Parity. Um, I jokingly suggest in the book that it's perhaps because Americans knew about this, Mr. Keynes, but were unclear about this, uh, this other character, Mr. Churchill. Anyway, it shows, I think, that Keynes was already fighting in a big league. His advocacy of public works in Britain, in a campaign where he now publicly backed Lloyd George, and the Liberal Party gave him a partisan political image, as a left-wing liberal, though not as a socialist. Keynes went from bad to worse in the eyes of his critics when he showed himself ready to question not just the gold standard and the sanctity of a balanced budget, but the good old liberal doctrine of free trade too in the crisis of the early 1930s. Hence the jibe that civil servants told each other when five economists are gathered together, there will be six conflicting opinions, two of them held by Maynard Keynes. Some of this had a grain of truth in it. His reputation suffered. 1933 was clearly the bottom of the slump, and perhaps it was also the bottom of the slump in Keynes' reputation, at least in Britain. But in the USA, it also saw the election of a new president preaching a message of audacity and hope and all the other things that new presidents preach. I mean, of course, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, elected with his proclamation in his inaugural address, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Now, Keynes warmed to this message and supported the New Deal with its many bold initiatives, many of them contradictory, it has to be said, and its ideological opponents denounced him as the evil genius behind the New Deal, supporting a supposed slide into socialism. Much has been written about Keynes' supposed influence on Roosevelt. Too little, perhaps, has been written about Roosevelt's influence on Keynes in identifying confidence as 
the key issue. Anyway, it was only with the war crisis of 1940 that Keynes came to favour in his own country. Suddenly, he was no longer just an academic, however famous, but a policymaker himself. He was given a, a unique position as the Chancellor at Chequers of uh, advisor, he became Lord Keynes of Tilton in 1942. At home in, in Britain, Churchill's wartime coalition government committed itself in 1944 to maintaining a high and stable level of employment after the war. The Keynesian logic of this policy gained bipartisan acceptance, and in the subsequent two decades, right into the 1960s, the general theory came to acquire almost scriptural authority, and like scripture was more often cited than actually read. Post-war Keynesianism preached that the key task of economic policy was to manage the aggregate level of demand in the economy, so as to maintain full employment, preferably without inflation, of course. And this was attributed to Keynes. The cover story of Time magazine at the end of 1965 supplied the popular imprimatur here, crediting no less than Professor Milton Friedman of Chicago, whom it called the nation's leading conservative economist with the headline phrase, we are all Keynesians now. A phrase that was subsequently attributed to President Nixon, it can certainly stand as the epitaph for an era. But hubris has so often paved the way for nemesis. As the 1970s unfolded, the combination of mounting inflation plus mounting unemployment, stagflation as the uh, new, new term went, was a nightmare combination which self-professed Keynesians seemed unable to explain still less to remedy. Incomes policy, an idea with a genuine Keynesian pedigree, proved to be a dead end on both sides of the Atlantic, at least in practical terms. Dennis Healy, Chancellor of the Exchequer in the new Labour government, found himself exasperated by the mindset that he found on taking office in 1974. He wrote, in 1974, the Treasury was the slave of the greatest of all academic scribblers, Maynard Keynes himself, but not for long. Instead, monetary solutions were sought, focused on the supply of credit and interest rates. One remarkable aspect of the controversy about these issues is how far it was personalised, because the name that came to rival that of Keynes was that of Milton Friedman, the front man of the Chicago School of Economics, Nobel laureate in 1976. So if we talk about the most influential economists of the 20th century, Friedman too must be considered, like Keynes and unlike Schumpeter and Hayek, he was a publicist for a controversial policy agenda. Friedman may not always have been right, but he was certainly always forthright. Keynesian economics doesn't work he proclaimed, but nothing is harder for men than to face facts that threaten to undermine strongly held beliefs. So Keynes, Friedman really, was thus Keynes through the looking glass. In Britain, the new political economy of Thatcherism took up 
the Friedmanite doctrine of monetarism allied with an ethic of fiscal restraint or good housekeeping as the lady herself described it. Thatcher's closest advisers had the simple watchword by now, Keynes is dead. Just as Thatcherism overthrew the Keynesian consensus in Britain, so the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 brought a new economic regime to the United States, ostensibly celebrating Friedman, though actually failing to balance the budget, which was part of the Friedmanite message. Now, nobody was less... uh, Nobody... could fail to be impressed by the change that had come about. Government in Reagan's epochal formulation, government was not the answer, but was itself the problem. Faith in the universal efficacy of the market became the new creed. And really, if you go on into the 90s, this was basically unchallenged, I think, by either... Clinton in the United States or Blair and his uh, new Labour government in Britain. Sustained by historically high growth rates from the mid-1990s, this was an era that had little time for the arguments that had dominated the previous half century. Keynesian economics by this point was now disparaged for peddling remedies that were simply not needed so long as the economy was left to cure itself through the liberating impact of unrestrained market forces. As Robert Lucas, the current Dwyan of the Chicago School, put it in 1980, one cannot find good under 40 economists who identify themselves or their work as Keynesian. At research seminars, people don't take Keynesian theorizing seriously anymore. The audience starts to whisper, and giggle to one another. But then came the great meltdown of 2008. Incomprehensibly, market forces failed to deliver the goods. Market forces failed to offer self-correction. Market forces failed to cope with a self-inflicted crisis of confidence. So you might say for about 30 years, Keynes's reputation had languished, and in about 30 days, the defunct economist was rediscovered and rehabilitated. So that's a thumbnail sketch of the course, I think, of the roller coaster reputation. I'm going to turn in the final part of the lecture to considering Keynes's ideas and their relevance to us today. As a moralist, it seems to me, Keynes can still speak to us. His books remain highly readable. What a pity that so few economists today have ever read them, even for a giggle. But I recommend them. We need to acknowledge one difficulty, I admit, in communing with the spirit of a timeless Keynes, that he was famous in his own lifetime for changing his mind. If he was challenged, his reply was... When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Which was a good repast. James Mead uh, uh, assures me of the veracity of this uh, um, uh, comment. 
Nobody was less bound by orthodoxies. Keynes was always ready to abandon old ideas, including his own, when he came up with better ones, either better suited to changing conditions, mainly in policy, or else better in logic and insight, mainly in theory. And there is, too, an important distinction which we need to keep in mind, I think, between policy and theory here. Keynes published the general theory in 1936. We know it as his magnum opus. But he didn't know that until he'd written it and was full of ideas in the meantime, of which he thought equally well at the time. And some 12 years previously, a full 12 years before the general theory, Keynes had already departed from orthodoxy in active arguments about policy, especially about unemployment, from 1924 onward. This was the launch of a Keynesian policy agenda that is still debated today and can't be said simply to derive from Keynes's theory, as in the general theory. He called for public works to administer a stimulus as a means of promoting recovery. And he did so while he was still himself essentially orthodox in his economic theory, what he called classical economics. Keynes did not initially challenge the theoretical proposition that in the long run market forces would produce equilibrium. But he thought it irresponsible simply to sit back idly and to wait for that happen, to happen. Hence his famous phrase, in the long run, we're all dead. Not meaning uh, that we can ignore the long term or just concentrate on the short term, but the need to do something. In policy then, Keynes appealed to social justice and to common sense when faced with real world imperfections in the market processes. And above all, when these arose because prices were not as flexible as the classical model presupposed, that they were in fact sticky in the real world, wages were sticky when workers refused to take pay cuts in particular. So the point I'm making is that these pragmatic arguments about policy did not demand conversion to what we might call doctrinal Keynesianism, a doctrine which Keynes himself did not propagate publicly until much later in the general theory from 1936. Other prominent economists who were not doctrinal Keynesians uh, supported him. I'm thinking of his Cambridge colleagues, A.C. Pigou and Dennis Robertson in particular. They supported him at the time in these uh, policy arguments. And others conceded the policy point, at least in retrospect, even at the LSE, which was often um, the most resistant to Keynesian ideas. I'm thinking of Lionel Robbins, the great economist who dominated LSE for so long, though it's not true of Hayek. I think this is an important point then to make about policy, that to be a Keynesian in policy, you don't necessarily have to be, as it were, a Keynesian in economic theory. None of this detracts, though, from the enduring significance of Keynes's 
theoretical analysis of the failings of a free market. And we should, indeed, see what the general theory tells us here. What it tells us is that classical economics is fatally flawed. In particular, it cannot explain unemployment except as, in some sense, voluntary because of wage stickiness, because of a refusal to allow wages to be reduced. Thus, through jams and hitches and imperfections of this kind, the price mechanism of the free market is prevented from achieving equilibrium. Workers, in this sense, choose to be unemployed when they resist wage cuts that would otherwise enable them to keep their jobs. Yet sometimes... Only a few apparently volunteer for unemployment in this way, whereas at other times, millions apparently do so. Why does this happen? Classical economics doesn't have an adequate answer, I think, here. Full employment is not explained, but simply assumed. Equilibrium, we might say, is thus the holy grain, holy grail of classical economics, even if it's a quest that's continually thwarted by the wicked world in which we live. But Keynes disclosed a different view, that there is no holy grail, because equilibrium can indeed be achieved, but at less than full employment. So the economy, rather than being in balance here, the benign sense of equilibrium, is at rest. There are no forces to disturb it, no market forces to shift it back on the path to full employment. Hence the case for a stimulus to set the market uh, back on track in this way. Effective demand, in the general theory, drives the economy. And investment really drives effective demand. So the role of the state is to ensure that investment is always sufficient, especially at times when the market seems paralysed by fear, panic or inertia. And there's a further dimension to Keynes's thinking that was largely overlooked, I think, in the so-called golden age of Keynesianism after World War II. The general theory points to a psychology of economic activity as the key to understanding how markets work. For confidence drives investment, and what Keynes called animal spirits are of vital importance in producing uh, the sort of impetus that is is needed for um, economic growth. Keynes tells us that economic behaviour is actually bedeviled by radical uncertainty in a way that orthodox economists have refused to recognise. Not only is the classical economics against which Keynes rebelled premised on rational decision-making, Much the same, surely, remains true of the so-called new classical analysis which we've seen in recent years. Orthodox economists have continued to allow for risk only in terms of probabilities that we can cope with because they can be measured and offset. The general theory offers a fundamentally different view. Some of our knowledge of the future is certain, some not. Events that are probable 
and thus can be measured or estimated or modelled are not really the problem. Risks may be there, but they are known risks. They can be insured against by those who know. The crucial distinction, therefore, is between what is probable in this sense and what is uncertain. Probability, like the toss of a series of coins, can be estimated in a secure way with a few statistics and a bell-shaped curve and some confidence and perhaps a bit of um, computer work too. Bart Keynes insists, our knowledge of the future is fluctuating, vague and uncertain. So what about uncertainty as distinct from probability? like the chances of the outbreak of a future war. We simply do not know, Keynes tells us. And this is a very important point indeed, because in that case, we're thrown back upon making the best of a bad job on the basis of hunch, common sense, precedent, convention, superstition, magic, whatever. But we can get by. This is real life. That's how we have to make many of the most important decisions in real life, to get married or to have children or to build houses or whatever. The real question, perhaps, and the one that's been brought home to us recently, follows from this. Did the masters of the universe, so-called masters of the universe on Wall Street or in the city, who supposed that they had tamed risk through clever programming of their computers, know what they were doing? Hardly. But worse than that is not to know that you do not know. And that, I think, is the lesson we can take from Keynes and the general theory here. This is surely important. But it's not the only reason why the general theory still speaks to us. Personally, I argue that another organising insight is at least as important, the dichotomy between individual choice and aggregate outcome in the market. The general theory, as Lord Layard said at the beginning, is actually all about aggregates and for a very good reason. The general theory's paradox of thrift, as Keynes describes it, is one aspect of this problem, meaning the way that a precautionary flight into saving by everyone simultaneously doesn't in fact increase net saving in the economy at all, because it reduces demand in the economy as a whole and will reduce the value of the savings too. So that the more we all try to do this, the less we will succeed. Keynes was pointing here to a problem, I think, of more general application, which seems to me, perhaps in my ignorance, but it seems to me to lack an agreed name among economists and among those who discuss these matters, though other variants are the fallacy of composition, which economists sometimes talk about, or the tragedy of the commons, another uh, phrase that's used here, showing how our individual 
self-interest may in fact militate against our collective self-interest, or the so-called prisoner's dilemma, of which the game theorists have made such play in recent decades. A homely example of the general problem is the theatre. Here we are, where we would each get a better view if we stood up. But if we all stand up at once, we end up, funnily enough, not with a better view, simply in a more uncomfortable position than we started with. And a fire panic in the theatre is even worse. If we each try to save ourselves by all rushing for the doors at once, the the result is is worse than than ever. So the fallacy is to suppose that what one person can do, all can do simultaneously. A simple idea, but Keynes puts it to work, it seems to me, in the general theory, as uh, one of its organising insights. Strategies that seem rational to individuals may prove collectively self-defeating. And that too tells us how and why markets, even free markets inhabited by rational decision makers, can fail. I think it's a mistake, however, to stake everything on Keynes's claims to have made breakthroughs in economic theory, important though they are. Keynes had a polemical strategy in the general theory. He set up the classical economics in order to to knock it down. It became what his friend Dennis Robertson, who didn't agree with Keynes' final conclusions here, what Dennis Robertson called a composite Aunt Sally of uncertain age. Well, here the whirly gig of time, I think, has duly brought in one of its revenges, because after Keynes' death, the self-appointed keepers of the Keynesian flame showed a jealous zeal that almost snuffed it out. The Keynesianism that was discredited in the 1970s was itself, I would argue, a composite Aunt Sally of uncertain age, rather than what Keynes himself had actually said. So it seems to me we should not celebrate dogmatic Keynesianism, meaning doctrine, at the expense of pragmatic Keynesianism, meaning policy. When we ask why the Great Crash led to the Great Depression 80 years ago and how our situation today is different, part of the answer is surely that some of the relevant lessons have been absorbed. Some people may still labour under the impression that our recent crisis was caused by big government when all the evidence surely is that of market failure which it's fallen to big government to remedy. Let's hope that such delusions uh, don't continue to inhabit the minds of any of our respective political leaders. Indeed, the 
impressive degree of consensus internationally in giving fiscal stimulation to a flagging economy is surely a key reason why the threat of a second Great Depression seems, as we speak, to have been averted. All is not yet solved, but it seems as though it may be on, we may be at a turning point. I think we should note with satisfaction what we now hear from Chicago, where Robert Lucas Riley admitted at the height of the recent crisis, we are all Keynesians in the foxhole. Or take Ben Bernanke, who was a pupil of Milton Friedman and has paid elaborate tributes to Friedman's intellectual influence, now, of course, chairman of the Fed in the United States in control of um, uh, monetary policy, who's taken a highly pragmatic view of policy, ready to support not just monetary easing, which can indeed be justified in Friedmanite terms, but also support a fiscal stimulus too in the United States and for the international community, which is clearly a Keynesian policy. Keynes himself never set up as the Pope of a new religion. In 1944, on a visit to Washington, D.C., after one dinner where he was lionized by an admiring throng of younger American economists, he said at breakfast the the next morning, you know, I was the only non-Keynesian there. (laughs) So, what would Keynes say today? Well, I think I've perhaps said enough on his behalf. Now we have, uh, let's say, about uh, 25 minutes for some questions and discussion. Uh, Yes. Let's wait for the mic, and and then everybody can hear the question. Tell us who you are, too. I used to be in the Treasury, so I'm deeply interested in the practical effects, the policy effects of, of Keynes. I was very impressed in 2008 when Alistair Darling announced that suddenly policy was Keynesian. What strikes me is going through the 50s and 60s is that demand management, as Treasury officials at the time preferred to call it, they were were fiddling around with quite narrow bounds of economic performance and their obsession was usually the balance of payments. There doesn't seem to me to have been a time in British history since Keynes was alive, when we've tested using demand management, using a fiscal stimulus to, to get us out of a really serious economic crisis of the sort we have now. Why do you think there is such faith amongst politicians, the media, perhaps even amongst economists, in this idea that a fiscal stimulus can uh, get us out of a recession? A good question, and if we go back to Robert Lucas's point that we're all Keynesians in the foxhole, perhaps he'd say in the spirit of Bruce Burns' father, if you know of a better hole, go to it. Um, The um, monetarists um, who had made so much uh, running, and and right, validly so in, in many ways, in arguing that Keynesianism was incapable of dealing with inflationary situations, 
found themselves in the reverse position, I think, when they were faced with the um, uh, signs of a, a, a slump uh, uh, within the last year, because a merely permissive monetary policy, um, a mere easing of credit restriction, or even pumping more money into uh, the, uh, the money supply, um, showed no signs of, of doing the trick here. It simply, uh, as in the Great Depression of the 1930s, it simply wasn't enough to lift the economy in this way. The case, the pragmatic case, for administering a fiscal stimulus, meaning using the tax and spend policy of government in order actually to inject demand in, into, into the economy, in that sense seemed, uh, in, in quite pragmatic terms, a much more uh, a promising uh, alternative. And um, very interesting to see, surely, um, a year ago, that... Um, leaders of business, of manufacturing industry, uh, people with hands-on responsibilities for actually running uh, outfits that, you know, were coping with real problems and, and, and responsible for real jobs in the economy. Very few of those um, expressed the view that we didn't need a, a stimulus um, at that point. So... Uh, um, I think the point I'm, I'm making is that a, a high degree of pragmatism here, that this was the least bad option to choose, seems to have been a, a fairly general consensus. Before the G20 meeting that was held in April, there was much talk about whether the international uh, community would fragment here. Um, Angela Merkel... Uh, as a leader of a basically right-wing government in Germany, was talking in sceptical terms and, and, and so on. Um, Stephen Harper, the Conservative Prime Minister of Canada, who'd been inclined to dismiss talk of a recession as, as just offering good buying opportunities on the stock market, and, and others were, were speaking at the same tune. But when they all got together and looked at the real alternatives in the real world, uh, the degree of consensus, I think, was, was really rather impressive. And it seems to me we owe an awful lot to the fact that that was so. Not only in a hydraulic sense, in that that was the means of pumping more demand into the international economy, but also in a broader psychological sense in sustaining confidence, uh, which is the other part of Keynes's message here. Yeah. Let, uh, let's wait for the microphone. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm Irish, but I've been living, living over here for 25 years, and we've had um, two um, experiences with Keynes. Um, in, in the late 70s, those who had done some history thought um, Keynes would sort out everything. We, we, um, we um, incurred a, a huge um, fiscal deficit and so on I mean I only found the, the Irish economy was going, to, going down the tubes when I was talking to an economist down the pub um, uh, now um, the, um, in, in, in the current atmosphere 
Ireland can't afford a fiscal stimulus um, given the state of, of its public finances and given, given that, that it's a, a member of the, the, of the euro. So the, 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 the question I, I put, to, put, to, put to you is um, if Britain had been a member of the euro, um, would it have, have been, 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 been possible to um, um, adopt an economic policy of, of re, re, reducing the budget debt deficit over a, a, a long-term period of eight years rather than the four years in which Ireland is, is being forced to, to, to do it. And secondly, the fiscal stimulus in the British economy has, has as far as I'm aware, only been $20 billion. And it, it hasn't been, been that big of a fiscal stimulus at all. Thank you. There are a number of points wrapped up there, and I'm, I'm not sure I can, I can uh, uh, deal with all of them. One point I'd, I'd like to make is that although I, I come here tonight with the general message that we should attend to what the historical Keynes still has to tell us, uh, it's no part of my um, theme to defend everything that was done in the name of Keynesianism in the in the, uh, especially in the, in the 70s and, and 80s, in, a, in a, an inflationary situation, the last thing that a Keynesian analysis would point to would be to be running uh, uh, government deficits. What Keynes would point to would be a, to a symmetrical policy of, of running government surpluses in those periods. If you apply that to the position that we're in today, whether it's the position of Britain or the, or the position of Ireland, if the public finances have been in better shape during the fat years, they would be more capable of easily sustaining the strain of, of, of switching to uh, uh, running deficits in order to finance uh, stimulus measures now. But that, of course, uh, it, it, it's no good simply arguing in these terms. We have to deal with the real world as it is here and now. And uh, when we ask whether countries can afford a stimulus package, you could equally well turn that question the other way around. Can they afford not to have one? I'm not saying that there are no conditions under which a stimulus uh, would be um, impossible or at least inadvisable if uh, confidence in the credit of the government itself and in and in the um, uh, uh, value of, uh, of government bonds declines to a catastrophic extent. Clearly, you, you can't simply go on printing money in, in order to try and, and cover up the position. That's not, however, the position uh, that we're in today. Those who are worried about uh, inflation right at the moment are worrying about the wrong problem at, at the wrong moment, I think. And... Uh, Likewise, if we are worried about the uh, level of public debt that is uh, being incurred, I don't want to minimise its scale. In some senses, it, it is, it is, it is uh, uh, rather uh, frightening. But the alternative, it seems to me, is so much worse because if the stimulus strategy succeeds in regenerating 
economic growth, then historically we know that the way that public debt has been reduced as a share of GDP has been by increasing the GDP. And it's that uh, process in in which we should um, ultimately, I think, uh, uh, repose some confidence here. I'm I'm, uh, aware I haven't covered all the points you raised, but as I say, it was rather a complex bundle. The representative from the Treasury. Sorry, can you put it up? Said the. Uh, uh, can you tell us who you are? Sorry, Jeff okay. Taylor. I was actually at the LSE at the time of Lionel Robbins, okay. and uh, can say he was a one-off in opposing Keynesianism among the lecturers there. The person who worked in the Treasury said that the people in the Treasury were not Keynesians or didn't apply Keynesianism. But it seemed to me that a lot of our uh, leaders were applying Keynesian policies, not, of course, uh, dealing with unemployment, but dealing with uh, inflation. Uh, Certainly Harold Macmillan, certainly Rab Butler, certainly Harold Wilson, Certainly Roy Jenkins. In fact, Roy Jenkins uh, was blamed by a lot of members of the Labour Party for losing the 1970 election. Why? Because he realised that because of the inflationary pressures, he needed to have a budget surplus rather than a budget deficit. Comment on that. Thank you. I think there's a lot of truth in, in, in what you've said. Uh, uh, th- there is a potent myth uh, which was um, uh, propagated in the Thatcher era. Nigel Lawson uh, was uh, perhaps it, it's, its leading uh, um, prophet, um, claiming that um, um, in the Keynesian era, the public finances would be run in a ruinous way and that uh, the influence of of Keynes could be most simply expressed as inaugurating an era of of deficits. Uh, If you look at the actual figures uh, for the British budgets um, uh, in the period since the war, you'll find that on the conventional definitions of the public finances by the maxims that go back to the time of Gladstone in the the 19th century, um, there's only one year, I think, until the um, um, uh, 1970s uh, when uh, the British budget was, in fact, in deficit. The same sort of case has been made by the Nobel laureate uh, James Buchanan and the so-called Virginia School of Public Choice theories theorists to, to claim that the political legacy of Lord Keynes is, in fact, deficits. Um, if there's one thing that everybody knows about Keynes, especially that Americans know about Keynes, it is that he is in favour of deficits. I think people who think that uh, simply betray their unfamiliarity with the works that he actually wrote himself. If you look for what he wrote about deficits, you'll find that he's very cautious in restricting the case for deficits to the situation where you're in a slump. He said, don't try and correct the budget at that point. Don't cut back social spending. Don't cut back health spending. Don't cut back unemployment 
benefit during the slump. These are what we now recognize as the automatic stabilizers uh, that, that will see us through. The weakness, conversely, in the application of Keynesian policies in an era of inflation was that despite all of this, it proved more difficult to make the policy fully symmetrical to run uh, budgets uh, in, in a way that, that managed to contain inflation within the system. And I think that is probably the main practical weakness in, in the application of Keynesianism within inflationary conditions. But those are not the conditions we face at the moment. So let's at any rate agree that in the world we're actually living in in 2008, 2009, and we'll be living in 2010, we're in a world where the uh, Keynesian maxims can be applied with a great deal of confidence. Hi, uh, my name is Edward Corcoran. Although they're being pragmatic, um, perhaps out of necessity, um, the governments at the moment, uh, are they not also accepting the economics behind, Keynesian, behind Keynesianism? There are dissenters, such as Robert Barrow, so there are alternatives, um, even if they think they're in a foxhole. Uh, so how does this fit with your previous suggestion that there's a distinction between pragmatic and economic Keynesianism? I'm, I, I, could, could, you, could you just um, repeat yeah. the... A, a lot of people like to sure. hear it. Hear, can yeah. you say it again very clearly? Okay. Okay. Uh, perhaps you were holding the mic just a bit too close to your lips. I'm sorry, we didn't quite get the... the you suggested thing. that governments at the moment are being pragmatic in their use of Keynesian policies. Yes. Um, in the use of using deficit funding to, in order to enact government yes. stimuluses. Um, however, in so doing, they're also accepting, I believe, certain Keynesian economic logic, which you suggested before, um, you could actually separate from the pragmatic side of, Keyne of Keynesianism. And I wondered if you could comment on that, when, I mean, yes. in the light of the fact that there are uh, other high-profile economists who don't think that budget deficits in order to finance fiscal debt uh, right. are necessarily a okay. good idea. Got it. Thank you. Um, when I talked about a consensus, I didn't mean it was a consensus that included everybody. You mentioned the name of Robert Barrow, uh, distinguished um, um, new classical e economist who has really uh, made his, his name by rediscovering ideas that he finds in Ricardo. Ricardian equivalence is, is the economic shorthand here. The idea that if you run a deficit, you don't actually uh, fool anybody. You, 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 will, uh, you, will, you will simply be um, uh, pushing all these uh, charges onto a f future generation with no uh, net, net benefit to the, uh, uh, to the, to the economy in, in the long run. That's his view. Um, in practical terms, what we would need to sustain such an objection to funding deficits would be an alarming rise in the level of interest that had to be paid on government bonds. We're not seeing that at the moment. We're seeing a largely stable situation. So it seems to me that... Uh, I, I would uh, stand by the um, uh, 
uh, by the um, uh, point that it seems to me those in government faced with a series of bad alternatives have broadly opted for what we can call a Keynesian consensus here, meaning in this sense by Keynesian a pragmatic agreement that these are the appropriate economic policies. And what I was uh, seeking to argue was there is a further uh, dimension to Keynes's thinking which may well interest us and which um, I, I think uh, it is certainly valid, but actually we don't need to go there in order to recruit the essential uh, measure of support that we need uh, in, in order to uh, um, uh, achieve a, 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 a pragmatic agreement on policy issues now. And the key point here is to go back to Keynes's famous phrase, in the long run, we're all dead. It's really no good uh, pointing to a sort of economics that only promises us that in the long run, a long run which, which uh, may, may en encompass a whole generation, the economy uh, may right itself, uh, we, we are surely uh, responsible people if we opt for uh, policies of intervention uh, which can generate the economic uh, uh, growth which will, uh, uh, which, which, which will uh, pay off the uh, amount of public borrowing that is, of course, the necessary consequence of, uh, of opting for um, uh, stimulus measures. I'm going to let, my, let myself ask the last question. <laughs> you were talking of the um, acceptability of Keynesian ideas up to the early 70s and then mm. a, a decline in confidence and then uh, a, a recrudescence now. But um, I, w I wonder if, in fact, um, the, the decline was quite as great as maybe you gave the impression, in the sense that I mean, if we ask what did, what did Friedman do which was contrary to the Keynesian message, he uh, introduced the idea of the natural rate of unemployment mm. and uh, that inflation would go up if unemployment was lower and go down if unemployment was higher. So he sort of anchored the system uh, uh, in, in the long run. But he didn't uh, say very much about fluctuations. If you look at what was said and what was taught uh, in every uh, introductory economics book about fluctuations, it was completely Keynesian the way it was done. C plus I plus G plus net exports and how do you explain each of those went, went on in the thinking in, in any certainly elementary economics teaching and certainly went on in the practice of of governments, I would say in the 1980s, every government was using C plus I plus G to forecast the level of economic activity and taxation. I mean, even if they weren't using it to derive a policy uh, conclusion, they were using it for forecasting. And by the 90s, you had every central bank in the world having its own model uh, with C plus I plus G, forecasting each of these elements and using... Uh, those forecasts as a guide to policy intervention. Now, the, the policy intervention, of course, what became interest rates mm. 
and, and, and the, the conventional thought was you shouldn't fiddle with uh, fiscal policy uh, if you could avoid it. Mm. You should do it through monetary policy. And I think that may have been quite a sensible view in a reasonably stable environment such as we had in the quotes great moderation from the early 90s to, to now. But uh, the models have always had the possibility for fiscal policy and they've always had um, a, a structure which would never have been there without Keynes' ideas. So I, I wonder, I mean, maybe in terms of the, the words used in popular discussion yes. and the press, it's true to say that there's a su- sudden rediscovery of Keynes, but he was never really lost in quite that sense, was he? I think that there's... Uh, very great deal of truth in what uh, Lord Laird is saying here and with, with great uh, authority having uh, been in, involved in, in many of these matters that um, the tools with which the policy makers uh, were working were implicitly Keynesian tools even when they weren't proclaimed as such. When Milton Friedman himself said in, in 1965 we are all Keynesians now, in a certain sense, though adding that there are senses in which none of us are, are Keynesians. I've wondered what he meant by that. I think, I think what he meant was that there are ways of looking at the economy um, uh, that we now all accept. Uh, that is to say, a, a macroeconomic view in which we are modelling the aggregates in the economy as a whole. After all, you can't even be... Uh, a, a monetarist, can you, without dealing in aggregates and uh, arguing the case in terms of the aggregate effects in the, in the economy as a whole. So it may well be that Milton Friedman scored um, a more considerable polemical triumph against Keynesianism and, um, and that those um, Thatcherites who went around telling us that Keynes was dead likewise um, uh, had it had easy rhetorical uh, victories, but that um, um, in the uh, in the back rooms of government, uh, perhaps in a more pragmatic way, um, the uh, um, those who actually had to devise and implement policy were not proclaiming uh, the labels in a, in a, in a, in a, in a uh, very conspicuous way, but we're, we're carrying on, on working with, with much the same tools because after Keynes, and this would be part of the case for saying this was a real revolution in economic theory with abiding consequences, after Keynes there were there was no other way of looking at the economy except by acknowledging its macro economic dimension here. So it may, be, it may then finally be part of the reason why Keynes's name popped up apparently so quickly in the recent crisis and was legitimated and celebrated so suddenly that um, um, although he was dead, perhaps the coffin lid had never really been nailed down quite so firmly as, as, we, as we supposed. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much, Peter. I mean, I, I think um, behind all this uh, is the importance of ideas and the history of ideas for actually the quality of our lives. 
Uh, that, that is what Keynes was about. He was about the power of ideas to influence what happens in the world for human betterment. Uh, and I think the way Peter has traced out uh, Keynes's ideas, how they impacted sometimes, how their fortunes went up and down, has been really fascinating uh, and, and uh, extraordinary uh, sort of illustration of both the durability of ideas which are right um, and, and the fickleness of, uh, of the public. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for the lovely way you've done it. Thank you. Thank you.